Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR130W421, Restitution and Restoration, Sixth Commandment, Exodus, X21, Verses 18-25. 21 verses 18 through 25. Restitution or restoration. Exodus 21 verses 18 through 25. Restitution or restoration. And if men strive together, and one smite another with a stone or with his fist, and he die not, but keepeth his bed, if he rise again and walk abroad upon his staff, then shall he that smote him be quit. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod, and he die under his hand, he shall be surely punished, notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his money. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, strife for strife. God's purpose in redemption is the restitution or restoration of all things in, through, and under Jesus Christ our King. This is very plainly summarized for us in Acts 3.21. The goal of all history is, according to Matthew 19:28, the general regeneration or, to use the Greek very literally, the new genesis of all things in Jesus Christ. The consequences of sin are removed and God's kingdom established. This is not only the goal of history, it is declared that it must be our primary petition in all prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. This is at the heart of the Lord's Prayer. It is the first petition. Restoration means that humanity is to be restored to blessedness and the earth to be blessed together with men. Now the principle of restitution is basic to biblical law. It is especially forcefully brought out in the Sixth and Eighth Commandments, but it is present in all the law. It is the tragedy of our time that this basic principle of biblical law has been neglected and virtually forgotten. Briefly summarized, restitution means that if a man steals a hundred dollars from you, he must restore the hundred plus another hundred, the exact amount he hoped to profit thereby. 
Now the summary statement of this principle of restitution which appears in law after law throughout the whole of the Mosaic legislation and elsewhere in scripture is given to us in the statement an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. This means restitution. It is revealing that not only the modernist scholars who are trying to discredit the Bible, but also so many evangelicals, insist that this means that in the early days of the Old Testament and through much of the Old Testament, if by accident you knocked out the eye of someone else, then your eye had to be gouged out. Now, of course, this is evolutionary thinking applied to the Bible. There isn't a shred of evidence that this is what the Bible ever meant. In fact, it goes directly contrary to all the evidence. We can understand why the evolutionists insist that this is what must have been the case, even though there is no evidence for it. But why should the evangelicals like Merrill Unger of Dallas Theological Seminary insist on the same meaning? It is, of course, to discredit law. Because they are antinomian, they do not want law to stand. And so at this point, they join ranks, premillennial dispensationalists, with the unbelievers to try to undercut the Bible. But the principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, simply sums up the legislation which we have read. The laws from verses 18 through 23. The laws with regard to damages, injury, and abortion. As we understand clearly the principle of restitution and analyze the various laws, not only these that I read, but a number of others, for example, Leviticus 24, 19, Leviticus 24, 18, and 21, and a variety of other laws. We find that certain principles of liability appear in biblical law requiring restitution. First, the guilty party was liable for the medical expenses of the injured. We saw this in our scripture reading. He shall cause him to be thoroughly healed, the law declares in Exodus 21:19, which we read. Moreover, in that same verse, we find, second, that the guilty party is liable for the time lost from work. Third, the guilty party was liable to damages, to a general compensation for the injury. Fourth, the guilty party was liable if it were his animal that had done the damage, and he had greater liability if his animal had a previous record of violence. 
Now, when we deal with the principle of restitution or restoration, we have to say that, of course, we find it in non-biblical law, and we find it in the law today. The term, as the law uses it today, is compensation or damages. Thus, restitution is still with us to a degree. But there is a radical difference. A radical difference in our use of the idea of restitution which undermines the biblical purpose of the law. Compensation and damages as we meet it in law today is simply a hangover from the biblical principle. It has been basically undermined and supplanted. It is a survival. What is the difference? Criminal law now works to imprison the man. It regards his offense as an offense against the state so that the primary concern of the court is not restitution but the punishment and imprisonment of the guilty party. As a result, if you have been the object of any offense and you want damages and they refuse to pay, you have to go to court, not to a criminal court, but to a civil court and sue at your expense. Now this is reversing the whole procedure. Under biblical law, the criminal court, if we can use that term for the biblical court, declares that the punishment for the criminal is restitution. It did not sentence him to prison, but it sentenced him to repay. If we go back, for example, to early American law, which was biblical, a man who was guilty of any kind of offense towards another when he was taken to court had to pay, pay and the normal American principle was triple. In other words, he paid, if he had done damages to the tune of $500, he paid $1,500. And if he failed to pay, then he became a bond servant and worked it off. What happened to the biblical law of restoration, of restitution? To understand what happened, we have to realize that this was made by the early church in terms of scripture, the principle for all Christians and for all Christian society, for all law. But as the Middle Ages progressed, towards the latter part, the feudal barons and the medieval church stepped into the picture. And they said to themselves, as it were, here is a tremendous area of profit for us. If we collect it for ourselves as the penalty against the person, if we say it is an offense against the state, rather than against the per person. And so the feudal barons and the church as well began to hail all 
offenders into their courts and throw them into prison and say, you're not getting out until you pay us. And so they began to imprison them for ransom. And they either confiscated all their property or their relatives paid up a certain sum as was laid upon them. The victims in the process were neglected. The state collected, or the church collected, not the victims. Thus the theory developed out of this, which is now the theory of every modern state, that crime is an offense exclusively against the state. It is an offense against, say, California, or against Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, or against the French government, whatever the case may be. The rights of the victim thus are neglected and he must start a civil suit to get compensation. Now, to sum up this entire history of a transfer of law from restitution to imprisonment, we must note first what we've already stated, that the shift from restitution to imprisonment has its roots in the seizure of power by church and state, which was originally a shakedown with imprisonment as a part of the shakedown. In the process, of course, the church has lost out and the state has taken over entirely. Second, the state made imprisonment its criminal law and relegated restitution to civil law with little care to enforcing the results of its own decisions in civil courts. About 15, 18 years ago, an attorney in the state of New York checked out all the civil suits for damages, cases involving restitution. And he found that only about 10% of all the judgments awarded were ever collected. There is reason to believe the percentage is much lower today. What does this mean? You go to court, to a civil court, and institute proceedings at your expense to gain restitution. The court awards it to you but the court does not work to collect it for you. You then must start proceedings again to collect it with almost little or no cooperation from the state. As a result, what compensation can you get? Increasingly, the percentage of collection on such suits is less and less. A part of the biblical law of restitution or restoration, we must then say, third, was the right of self-defense against an aggressor. Anyone who was an aggressor against you and trespassed against you, a part of your power of restoration that is, to restore your status quo, was the right of self-defense. 
so that if a man invaded your property, you could move against him with violence. After dark, if he invaded your home, you could kill him and you were blameless before the law. This right of restoration of the status quo by protecting your property from those who trespass against it is steadily being taken away. Fourth, we must state further that the system of imprisonment and of rehabilitation, or whatever you want to call it, is in fact a subsidy to the criminal. He robs you, and then you support him in prison so that you are again robbed. Fifth, we must note further that there are only two possible sources of civil power, God and the people. If power is from God, then God's law must prevail, and God's law is restitution. If it is from the people, then the people's will shall prevail, because there is no higher law than their people. Restitution then becomes alien to democratic society, since it has reference to a higher order. Restitution says there is a law of God, an order that is from God, and this order must be maintained and developed. And anything that violates it calls for a restoration. Thus, restoration is a theocratic principle. And this is why our society is more and more indifferent to restitution. Now, restitution as a theocratic principle involves three things. First, very obviously, restitution to the injured person. Second, restitution must be made to God. Because anyone who has stolen or committed an offense against a person, an injury, has not only violated the person or the property of that injured party, but also God's order. And so Numbers 5, verses 6 through 8, declared that when there was no surviving person to whom restitution could be made, for example, the murdered person or injured person, rather, died and restitution had to be made, it was made then to God. And in some cases, the fifth part was added anyway as restitution to God. Third, restitution is, according to the scriptures, always mandatory, always required for a society to be healthy before God. Thus, when there is no person to make restitution, the state must make it. Where no guilty party is found, then the state, for having failed to make the law punishable in this case, for having failed to locate the criminal, must restore to you that which was stolen. In other words, there must be restoration or else the society faces God's judgment. Thus, the goal of society is clearly spelled out in the law of restitution. It is the restoration of God's order. 
The evil must be punished or penalized. The godly defended and godly law and order developed. This is what is involved in part in our prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. If we pray that prayer, then we have a duty to live in terms of the principle of restitution and to bring all of our society into conformity to it because God's will is declared in Scripture to be restitution. Thus, to be faithful to the Lord's Prayer, we must work and pray for a law order in which restitution is again basic. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we confess and acknowledge before Thee that our world today has forsaken Thy love, that it despises Thy word, and instead of making restitution or restoration, it tears down those things which are of Thee. We thank Thee, our Father, that in the face of these things we have the blessed assurance Thou in thy sovereign power dost undertake the work of restitution, that thou wilt bring judgment upon these wicked ones, that thou shalt restore the earth, that thou shalt restore godly law and order and confound and overturn and overturn those who are workers of iniquity. Give us faith, our Father, day by day in the certainty of thy work, in the glory of thy restoring hand. And confidence, our Father, in the day of adversity, knowing that thy word shall prevail. Bless us in thy service. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now with respect to our lesson, restitution? Yes. between premillennial dispensationalism and what? Antinomianism, yes. Right. The fallacy of Dr. Unger, who is a very able scholar, is this, that as a premillennial dispensationalist, he believes that there are various dispensations so that the law belongs to one dispensation and therefore it has no application for us so that the law is of no significance to him. Whether it's the law that I read or the Ten Commandments or any other law. In fact, because most premillennial dispensationalists are logical, they do not believe in using the Lord's Prayer. 
And I have known pastors who absolutely refused to have the Lord's Prayer in their services. In fact, I know of one uh, Episcopal congregation which had not too long ago such a pastor, he is still there in that community, who refused to use the Lord's Prayer in the services. And his reason was a logical one. Because someone told me he, uh, she challenged him and this was the answer that was given. Now, we, since we do not hold to dispensationalism, believe that God has had one way of salvation throughout all scriptures, always been of grace. And in the Old Testament, it was set forth through the sacrificial system which typified Christ. So that salvation was always through Christ, through the blood of the atoning Lamb. And the obligation of the believer, both in the Old and the New Testaments, has been that they have been saved to keep the law. As St. Paul declared it in Romans 8, 4, the purpose of our salvation, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Thus, the whole Bible is one book for us. But the systematic premillennial dispensationalist says the law applied to theocratic Israel it has no meaning for us, and neither do most of the Gospels, most of the Epistles, just a few passages really in the Epistles have any meaning, and a few passages in the Gospels. The rest of it has no meaning until the uh, millennium and the Jewish kingdom is restored, and then again the world will be under law. Now, of course, this, I believe, is wrongly dividing the word of truth. And there is no warrant for this, and it goes clearly against so much of uh, the teachings of the whole of the Bible, against all of it. And uh, Dr. Unger is simply being consistent when he bypasses the law as he does. And he's not as extreme as some are. Some go much further than he does. Yes. A very good point, yes. We have had to develop insurance policies to cover the whole process which was once basic to the law. In other words, because the law will not affect restitution, the insurance company has to do it for us, and we pay and pay. So that, uh, again, we are the losers. Supposedly our insurance policies do that. For example, because in this state, the matter was becoming so serious with respect to traffic accidents, uh, laws were passed to make insurance mandatory. 
are more or less mandatory. Now, those of you who are in insurance know more about this than I do because I'm rather vague here. But a few years ago, the problem was very serious. So we had this state law, and of course the problem immediately was that many of these people could not qualify for insurances. They had a bad record. Now did we say then, these people cannot drive a car because they are obviously irresponsible. On the contrary, the law then required that insurance policies be issued to these drivers who were really incompetent. And it required that the companies accept them. So now the companies accept them and pass them around, uh, assign so many to each company, and you pay their premium because your premium is raised proportionately to take care of them. So that supposedly this law was to help make restitution, but actually it penalizes you all the further. Yes. No, it was not considered. The purpose of biblical law was to effect restitution. Rehabilitation was the responsibility of the individual. Either he changed his ways or rest he affected restitution by being executed to restore order. Incidentally, some states still require mandatory uh, execution of uh, habitual criminals, but this is at present going up to the Supreme Court and will almost certainly be knocked out, especially because the habitual criminal in this case is a Negro. Yes. comment on which aspect? Yes, in ancient Greece you had uh, a number of so-called legislative reforms. Uh, well, let's bring the previous question and this one together. Is it the purpose of the state to uh, rehabilitate the criminal? When we make it the purpose of the state to rehabilitate the criminal, what are we saying? That the state is the father the parent. So the state ex exercises a parental function. Now, when the state exercises a parental function, it then becomes the caretaker as the father of all the people in the state. They are now its children. So while it seems heartless to say that the state cannot be involved in rehabilitation, but this is the duty of the individual and it is the duty of uh, Christian agencies in the state to work at this and then if the person fails, off with his head as it were. He's finished. For the welfare of society, he has to go. 
the consequences of making the state the uh, parent, as it were, are very deadly. And this is where all the Greek reforms fail. Because basic to all the Greek reforms was this whole concept of the parental function of the state. So that periodically they would have a serious problem and they would have a legal reform and they had a number of them. But none of them affected anything except through brute strength, briefly, they managed to stabilize the situation and then it would get out of hand. But their answer was always, you see, the wrong one. It was the state is going to do something about this as the father of the people. So even when in individual laws the Greeks sometimes had a sound principle, the basic orientation was wrong. Now the Greeks had a number of times the principle of restitution, but never in the biblical sense, in that always the offense was against the state, essentially, rather than against the person. Yes? Why do some of these uh, New Testament Christians so called um, claim that Jesus set aside this law of restitution? In Matthew uh, 38, uh, you've heard Yes. To understand this thinking, you have to realize that uh, they're looking at the Bible with colored glasses, as it were. If you have green-tinted glasses and look out at the world, the world is green. And this is the trouble with many people. They come to the Bible, as it were, with tinted glasses. And what are these tints? Well, they go back centuries, and in the studies I'm giving uh, first Wednesday of each month in San Marino on the great thinkers and the development of philosophy, this Wednesday I'll be calling attention to the abbot Joachim Fiora, whose thinking has influenced the modern world, modern uh, theology, modern fundamentalism, Marxism, Hegelianism, almost anywhere you turn, and especially the death of God's school, you find the abbot Joachim's thinking. Now, the abbot Joachim held that there were three ages in the world. The first was the age of the father and the age of law, the age of the god of wrath, and so on. Then this passed away, and you had the new age, the age of the son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and in the age of the son, you had grace and salvation by grace rather than by law as in the uh, age of the Father. And it was an age of missions and of evangelism and of uh, the offer of peace and so on to the world. And then the age of God the Son gives way to the age of the Spirit. And in the age of the Spirit, you are beyond the Father and beyond the Son, and you have the unification of all religions, 
and you live now in the spirit and the guiding principle is no longer law as in the first age nor grace is in the second age but it is love the spirit of the third age doesn't this sound familiar and don't you get it from all sides and uh, God is now dead God the Father and God the Son and it's God the Spirit which is in all men so you have this one world order and this one world religion and this is what we're all working for now this you encounter everywhere this kind of thinking as I say you find it in the far left you find it in fundamentalistic circles you find it as I had uh, did recently in a Christian college so-called you find it uh, everywhere you turn this and of course uh, it echoes itself in a lot of the literature of the day the third world thinkers the third world revolution this is what we're in the midst of so that uh, this is the gospel today according to almost every spokesman incidentally it's the gospel according to playboy so this is why you find this universal emphasis on love rather than on jesus christ in so many circles yes Well, yes. And people are misled when they think they're of Christian spirituality yes. when actually they're speaking of the so called spirituality of man. Yes. And we must say to them, uh, you know, Satan is a spiritual being too. What kind of spirituality are you interested in? Yes. You're so right. Yes. Not all premillennialism is dispensational. I'm uh, thank you for that correction. Uh, a good deal of it is, but not all. The Schofield system is dispensationalist, but uh, there are some reformed thinkers who are premillennial. So there is an element of premillennialism which is hostile to dispensationalism. Yes. Such as what? You'll find elements of this in Eric Sauer, too. I haven't read all his uh, works, but I've read the first volume of his trilogy, and it is there. Not in as strong a form as some of the Dallas people, but the elements of it are there. Yes. Uh, some of the remarks that I
Well, today in our thinking, the powers of the federal government are derived from the people. But this was not so when the Constitution was written. And the key to that is this. Nowhere in the Constitution is the word sovereignty ever used. Never. This is what makes it a unique document as far as uh, political documents go. Because they believe that sovereignty belongs to God. Never did they use the word with respect to the political order. Fifty years later, when some southern thinkers began to talk about state sovereignty, John Quincy Adams, in a famous Fourth of July oration, spoke against it and said it was alien to everything that was American, alien to everything that was constitutional. I quote a portion of his address in my book, This Independent Republic. Yes. given an attorney at public uh, expense. Now, what does this mean practically? Well, as I pointed out not too long ago, virtually every criminal who is arrested for a criminal offense is guilty. With the law being what it is, they are almost all guilty. But what is happening? Since an attorney is provided. The attorney can now dicker in the case of obvious guilt for a lesser term by threatening to tie them up. I sat in on some sessions recently. These were preliminary hearings of people who were caught, caught in the commission of a crime. The first date of the hearing the attorney appointed at our expense deferred the hearing, uh, claiming they needed more time to prepare their case and to get further evidence. This meant that when the complaining witnesses, the people who were robbed and so on, appeared and waited around for an hour or two for that case to come before the court, and it was dismissed, they lost most of the morning from work. Then the second time, the preliminary hearing was held. And it took a good deal of the day. They tied up an entire courtroom for all of the morning and a portion of the afternoon. And, of course, the logical conclusion was that these persons were bound over for trial. Now, again, when it came to the actual trial, they could play the same game, endless delaying tactics. 
which meant that by the time those persons were actually convicted, which was a foregone conclusion, the expense to the taxpayers would be tremendous, and the expense to the individual persons who were robbed, plus the witnesses, would be considerable because they would reappear day after day, and there would be a number of postponements. So, with this in mind, what happened? On the day of the trial, the attorneys appear and they tell the prosecuting attorney, well, we're going to need more time for this or that, and we've got a long case, but if you will reduce the charges, we will have our client plead guilty so that the charges are dropped significantly. And instead of something that would put them in prison for five to ten years, it's something that will give them, say, 30 or 60 days. And they plead guilty to that and get off. Why? For the simple reason that at your expense and mine, and the courts know it, Every court in Los Angeles and across country can be so tied up that the whole of our criminal uh, procedures will grind to a halt. They couldn't begin to process all these things. So you see, this means an effective breakdown of law and order. And this is what we're getting under this present system, which is a logical conclusion of something that is begun by defying God's provision. Yes.
authorized by the Calcedon Foundation, archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library, digitized by Christrules.com.